0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, Clash of the Titans.
1: Competition partner Susan Jones and intellectual property partner John Lee join us to discuss the long-standing battle between their areas of expertise, which came to a head in the recent Celgene Juno case.
2: One way that I tend to think about the monopoly that a patent confers on a company that's come up with some innovative technology is essentially that it's different from the types of monopolies that are discussed in competition. Law. I think sometimes that there's a conflating of those two concepts, which creates some problems.
3: I think that tension between the two regimes has actually played out very well in terms of encouraging and stimulating innovation while restraining some of the more anti-competitive practices that, of course, competition law is designed to prevent or prohibit.
1: Now, Matt, Clash of the Titans was a pretty forgettable 2010 film starring Australia's Sam Worthington as the Greek hero
0: Perseus, wasn't it? No, I don't think so, Moya. Clash of the Titans was an amazing 1981 film starring Ray Harryhausen's incredible stop motion animation as a variety of Greek monsters. Okay.
1: Well, are the Titans here Susan and John, or are they Selene and
0: Juno? Well, famously, Clash of the Titans doesn't have any actual Titans. It's got a bunch of monsters and also gods, uh, including Hera, the Queen of the Gods, who the Romans, of course, called Juno. Well, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Uh, That was Procrustes. What? And actually, the film industry has always been a battleground for competition and intellectual property. If Thomas Edison and the Motion Pictures Patent Company hadn't been so heavy-handed with their patents, then the filmmakers might never have been forced to move out west away from the courts and the lawyers all the way to Hollywood. Actually? Well, maybe. The courts actually struck down a lot of those patent agreements because they were anti-competitive and California was a pretty good place to make movies anyway. But that's how the story goes.
1: Mm, Well, now
0: I know how Procrustes felt. Anyway, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, the government's announced that it will indeed raise the maximum penalties for competition law breaches, as it promised before the last election. And it'll also raise the penalties for consumer law breaches, like the ACCC recently recommended.
1: I remember they said they'd increase the maximum penalty from $10 to $50 But actually, the penalty calculation is way more complicated than that, isn't it?
0: It is. So at the moment, it's the greater of $10 million, or three times the benefit of the conduct, if that can be worked out, Or if it can't be worked out, then it's 10% of your annual Australian turnover. So have they made that any simpler? Not really. Now it's going to be the greater of $50 million, or three times the benefit, or 30% of Australian turnover for the entire period that the company was in breach. Mm -hmm. Well, that could be a massive increase in the maximum, especially if the conduct has been going on for years. Yeah, it could. The penalties for individuals have also increased from half a million to $2.5 million, and the new maximums will apply to both civil penalties and criminal fines. And there was only a week of consultation on this, so it looks like it could all happen fairly quickly. Wow, that'll really focus the minds.
1: Obviously, those new penalties will only apply to conduct that takes
0: place after the provisions commence, but is it going to make much difference to the penalties that are actually awarded? It could. I mean, in the past, courts have sometimes started out with a maximum penalty, at least as a reference, and then assessed the conduct in that light. Sometimes, but not always? No, and and maybe less often in the future, especially when the maximums get so high that they're not so useful anymore. And that's what happened when Google agreed to pay a civil penalty of $60 million for misleading Android phone users about when it would collect and access their location data. And that was misleading because turning off your location history wouldn't stop Google from collecting location data. You also had to turn off web and app activity. That's right. And the court estimated that more than a million people may have been misled in that way. And with Google's annual turnover in Australia at up to $3 billion, that could have meant the kind of penalty that would just break the court's calculator. And so the court accepted that that arithmetic maximum penalty would be so disproportionately large as to make precise calculation unnecessary and unhelpful. And those new maximum penalties might also be too big to be really helpful in some cases. So what's a court to do? Well, here it had some guidance from the High Court in the Pattinson case from earlier this year which confirmed that the main purpose, if not the only purpose, of a civil penalty is deterrence. So, the penalty should be just enough to deter that defendant or anyone else who might be thinking of breaking the law. And the maximum shouldn't really have any bearing on that, except, of course, that it can't be exceeded. So, the court accepted that $60 would be enough of a deterrent. Yeah, and without being oppressive, that's right. So, that's civil penalties. What about criminal fines? Well, criminal sentencing isn't limited to deterrence. It's also partly about retribution and rehabilitation. The, the punishment is meant to be proportionate to the crime, and that does mean looking at the maximum penalty. And in fact, Justice Wigney recently gave a talk at a book launch and said that that difference could lead to a big gap between civil penalties and criminal fines for cartel offences, even though their maximums have always been the same on paper, at least. And that difference could be even bigger under the new maximum penalties. It could. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens to the kind of penalties the ACCC and the prosecutors are seeking and the kinds of the court's award going forward. Mm. Well, so all that wasn't great for Google, but was there any upside? There was. Uh, A few days later, it had an important win in the High Court, which held that Google wasn't responsible for a search result that linked to a defamatory article in The Age about a criminal lawyer in Melbourne who we won't name just in case the same principle doesn't apply to podcasts. Mm. So it is possible to defame a lawyer. I thought they'd be pleading prior bad reputation. Well, the lower courts had found a defamatory imputation that he'd crossed the line from just being a professional lawyer, you know, as bad as that was, and he'd become a friend and confident to the criminal underworld, and it awarded him $40,000 in damages, which Google has now got back. Well, that doesn't quite cover the 60 mil, but of course there's a lot more at stake if Google is going to be liable for everything that turns up in your search results. Exactly. And the question was whether Google is a publisher under our defamation laws, and the high court said that by surfacing a hyperlink to the article, Google hadn't participated in the communication of the defamatory. Matter. It had just provided a reference to a page where the devamatory matter happened to be. But the High Court wasn't unanimous on that, was it? No, Justice Keane and Justice Gordon both thought that Google had done enough to participate in the publication. So it's not quite as emphatic a win as it could have been, but 5-2 isn't bad. Yeah, and put that in context,
1: 5-2 is actually the biggest score ever in a World Cup final. And it happened twice, actually, uh, for the men, Brazil versus Sweden in 1958. Pelé played in that game. And for the women, US versus Japan in 2015, where Carly Lloyd got a hat-trick.
0: Amazing. But who knows, maybe we'll get an even bigger score in Sydney next August. Let's hope. And I will add that Five Times Two is an uplifting film by French director Francois Ozon, where we see the disintegration of a marriage in reverse order.
1: Mm. I think I'd rather watch Clash of the Titans. And speaking of which, Matt, you sat down with g and partners Susan Jones and John Lee to talk about
0: competition law and intellectual property. I did. So before joining us, Susan was head of global antitrust at the pharmaceutical giant Novartis, and John leads the patent practice in our tech and IP group. So they had a lot to say about what's been going on between those two fields lately. So it's antitrust versus
1: IP. That's a lawyer's derby if ever I heard one. I'm calling it the El Nerdico. Let's take a listen.
0: we're lucky enough to have two Gilbert Tobin partners with us today, Susan Jones from the Competition and Regulation Group, who's based in Melbourne, and John Lee from the Tech and IP Group here in Sydney. John and Susan, thanks so much for being with us today. Good to see
2: you. It's great to be here.
0: Now, competition law and intellectual property have often seemed to be in tension, if not in outright conflict over quite a long period. How has that tension played out, would you say, as these obviously very important areas of the law have developed?
3: Yeah, well, look, it's interesting, Matt, because I think looked at fundamentally and conceptually, they are in direct conflict. But I think that tension between the two regimes has actually played out very well in terms of encouraging and stimulating innovation while restraining some of the more anti-competitive practices that, of course, competition law is designed to prevent or prohibit. You know, I think in recent times, certainly from an IP lawyer's perspective, and I speak particularly from a patent background, because that's the nature of my practice, perhaps that balance has got a little bit out of kilter. And perhaps the competition law regime is encroaching a little bit onto IP laws when there are lots of built-in protections in the IP regime to limit and prevent unfair use of intellectual property rights.
2: One way that I tend to think about the monopoly that a patent confers on a company that's come up with some innovative technology is essentially that it's different from the types of monopolies that are discussed in competition law because that's based on market definition. While, you know, the monopoly that you have with a patent is around a particular technology or innovation. So I think sometimes that there's... A conflating of those two concepts, which creates some problems. Just because you are asserting your right to exclude others from using your valid innovation doesn't mean that you're excluding others from the market because there could be other technologies that are used for competing alternative products that are substitutable. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're excluding all competition from the market if you're asserting your valid IP rights.
3: Yeah. And I think if you go back to first principles, you know, approaching it from a competition law perspective, that monopolies are inherently not a great thing. The patent system recognises that, but understands this fundamental truth. And and the patent system has been in place for 400 years now. For a lot of technologies that we all benefit from, they're readily easy to replicate. Now, they may cost a lot of time and effort to develop and create, for example, some of the pharmaceuticals, the life-saving drugs, huge costs invested in developing those. Now, without any protection, they're very easy to replicate. It doesn't cost a lot. What's the incentive and encouragement for an organization to invest those very substantial sums on perhaps 10 candidates, only one of which is going to make it to market? So the patent system and competition laws have recognized as an exception to anti-competitive conduct in the form of monopolies that to reward an innovator for 20 years so they can recover their investment and perhaps make some profit to invest in future products is a benefit for all of us because at the end of the 20-year period, we all can use that innovation, that drug, whatever it is, and we all benefit. And that is the trade-off and there's some built-in protections in the patent system that mean you don't get a monopoly unless you develop something quite interesting that prevents some of those anti-competitive concerns.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about those protections?
3: The uh, state, the Commonwealth, does not give away patent monopolies lightly. So you have to file an application with the Patent Office and it's examined quite rigorously to assess whether it meets the criteria of being novel and inventive in return for which you should be granted that monopoly. And after that rigorous examination, the patent is granted, but that in itself is not conclusive it's open for a third party to challenge that process, either in the courts or through what's called opposition before the Patent Office. So that sets a certain bar, a certain barrier, a hurdle that you have to overcome in order to be even granted the monopoly. And that prevents people filing unmeritorious claims for patent monopolies.
2: And as John was referring to Until recently, there was express recognition in the Competition and Consumer Act in relation to IP rights and the importance of those rights. And essentially, there was a safe harbour exemption for IP assignments and licensing arrangements. And that was repealed with effect from 13th of September 2019. Um, So now you've got all IP arrangements, which have been entered into both before and after the repeal, became effective that they're now exposed to the full operation of the Competition and Consumer Act. And this includes the cartel provisions.
0: So that sounds like quite a seismic shift in the balance between competition and IP. And so where does that leave us?
2: The ACCC appears to be taking an increasing interest in restrictions in IP arrangements, particularly IP licenses between competitors and potential competitors, and particularly in relation to pharmaceuticals. There have been reports of the cartel branch and the ACCC investigating restrictions in patent settlement agreements in particular, and IP licenses and distribution agreements for pharmaceuticals since this repeal of the IP exemption. So it is something now where it's important to consider when entering into these IP arrangements, whether or not there are certain restrictions which could draw the interest of the ACCC.
3: I might just give a bit of context about how patent litigation in the life sciences space plays out. And certainly Susan's got plenty of experience in this. As we said, the originator may file for a patent and the standard term is they get 20 years. At the end of that 20 years, what we refer to as generics, and there may be four or five of them, will enter the market with their own versions of that drug or formulation as they're entitled to. That's how the patent system works. Patent litigation arises where those generics may take a view that the patent is not valid and decide to challenge the patent and seek to have it revoked so they can enter prior to the 20-year period. So from the originator's perspective, if they can settle that case with the generic on the basis that the generic may enter the market at a particular point in time, but their patent monopoly is reserved, that's how we get into this discussion about the competitive nature or aspects of these agreements.
0: Right. So if the generic competitor is successful, then the patent is gone and it's a free-for-all. Whereas if they reach an agreement, then there's going to be entry, but it's limited to that particular generic supplier. Without the protection of Section 51 of the Competition and Consumer Act, I guess businesses are relying on self-assessment or the authorisation process to navigate these issues.
2: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the authorisation process, that's optional. And recently, the ACCC published for comment a draft determination in which it proposed to deny an application for authorisation of a patent settlement agreement and licence agreement between uh, Celgene and two generic companies, Juno and Natco. And that draft determination contains some interesting signals about how the ACCC might apply the the Competition and Consumer Act to patent settlement agreements in the future. Celgene holds compound patents in relation to two of its products, Revlimid and Pomalyst. And in relation to the the compounds, lenalidomide and pomalidomide, which are used for the treatment of multiple myeloma and various other forms of cancer. They also have various method of treatment patents. And perhaps, John, I think you'd probably be better placed to explain the differences between these patents.
3: Yeah, sure. So a compound patent protects the underlying compound or chemical formula, which must be novel and inventive in order for there to be a valid patent granted. But then, in addition, a lot of um, originators or pharmaceutical companies will spend a lot of time and effort developing the best ways to formulate these things, the best dosage regimes, the best ways to administer them, and seek patent protection around each of those elements as well. Now, they still must meet the fundamental criteria of patentability. I must be a novel formulation, a novel method of treatment, and it must be inventive. So, there's that built in protection there but because of the significance of their investment in the core compound and product of course they try to build uh, an ip portfolio around it
0: so juno and natco want to develop the generic versions of these very important products but there are patents on foot so they've challenged those uh, i guess for reasons of novelty and inventiveness and now the settlement has been reached between Salgene and those providers what was the problem with that settlement
2: It seems that the ACCC has concerns in relation to the entry date provisions. That seems to have been the focus of the concerns that the agreements likely
0: to result in public detriment. So, that's the agreement that the generics will only arrive at a certain date. Exactly.
2: In particular, the entry dates that might reduce the competitive constraint posed by the threat of generic entry by providing the originator with greater control and certainty of the timing of generic entry and that this might also deter other generic entrants by essentially giving first mover advantages to Juno and Natco over other generics. In Europe and the US, the competition authorities have typically pursued patent settlements that provide for this so-called delayed entry date in return for payment or other non-monetary value transfer from the originator to the generic. And the concern was that that then meant that the entry date that was being agreed to was not based on the party's assessment of the merits of the patent and the enforceability of the patent, but instead was influenced by a payment. Competition was being paid off while what we're looking at in Australia, at least based on some indications coming out of the draft determination in the Celgene matter, is there's concern just around a pure entry date. There's no reference to any payment or anything. It's just purely the idea that parties are agreeing to an entry date in the context of an IP dispute relating to valid and enforceable IP rights.
3: Coming back to the context, I mean, that the starting point is CellGene has a granted valid patent. And while that is on foot, no one else can enter the market. It's an infringement of that patent to enter the market and you're liable for potentially substantial damages and or an account of profits. So it is pretty interesting. The, the outcome of this is that we don't know yet, but they're going to continue litigating. There will be no settlement. So the outcome is of this failure to authorize potentially further litigation. And is that going to encourage other generics to to enter the market in relation to this product? Well, we'll have to wait and see.
0: So, in this case, the C is happy to see litigation roll on and reach its conclusion. Mm. They also seem to be happy for entry to occur while the issue is unresolved, this notion of at risk entry. What do you think that says about the balance between competition law and intellectual property protections?
2: In Europe, th- th- there's a view that part of the competition that occurs between generics and originators is through litigation. And essentially, that by disputing patents, that that is part of what's built into in terms of deciding or working out when a product's going to enter. It's part of the competitive tension.
3: Yeah. And, and look, I'm, I'm not sure the C has endorsed or, or suggested that litigation here should continue. Presumably, they've just dealt with the issues on its face when the authorisation application was made. They review it from a competition perspective and they gave that draft determination. It's up to the parties now what they're going to do, whether that litigation will continue, whether they reach a settlement on the same or other terms, we'll have to watch this space.
2: And the draft determination leaves open the possibility that the ACCC could grant authorisation of patent settlements if the parties are able to provide convincing evidence of a net public benefit. So it's not the end of the story, but there are some interesting signals coming out of it around the fact that focusing on an agreed entry date when there's no value transfer risks not giving adequate consideration to the nature of patents and the rights that they confer or the, the benefits of avoiding the uncertainty and cost of litigation. And it could force parties to litigate to the bitter end without having the possibility of settling their disputes.
0: So after the repeal of the protection and this withdrawn authorisation, where does that leave businesses trying to assess patent settlement?
2: This draft determination and the fact that the parties have withdrawn the application before there could be a finalised position has increased the uncertainty really. Because now essentially there have been some initial statements made by the ACCC as to the various concerns it had around potential public detriment based on purely just an entry date. And then obviously there's been a consultation and parties have made submissions. And then unfortunately, we've, we haven't had the opportunity to see the ACCC's final views on all of that with the benefit of those submissions. So sadly, there's now greater uncertainty. And if parties are considering entering into patent settlement agreements, what this does indicate is that in Australia, it's important to not just assume that because there isn't a value transfer or a payment or some side deal, and it's purely an entry date settlement that you're in the clear. It's important to then consider, okay, what do my internal documents say about this? Do they indicate that the whole purpose of the settlement is to block the entry of generics? How are the the entry date provisions expressed within the patent settlement agreement? What do your internal documents say around the prospects of success for the litigation? And then the other issue, and this is more difficult, obviously, because this is information that sits within the generic company. Is there a real commercial likelihood that the generic would actually be entering and competing at an earlier date? And that would involve, you know, understanding what preparatory steps had actually been taken to enter. So have they got a contract manufacturer? Have they got their own manufacturing up and running? Have they, they secured the materials that they would need to actually manufacture the product? Have they challenged the IP right in court? Have they sought administrative authorizations to market the product? So there's a lot of assessment that would have to occur, but this does indicate that it would be prudent to go through these steps before entering into even an entry-date settlement agreement in Australia.
3: I think that's been a really good discussion. And, and as we said at the outset, what we're trying to achieve here in Australia, as in other jurisdictions, is this healthy balance between competition laws and IP laws in order to ensure that ultimately consumers benefit and have access to innovation. Not just in the life science sector, but across all sectors. And I think for Australia, it's important from an IP perspective that we maintain robust, enforceable IP laws, conscious all the time of competition issues. But in order to encourage investment in Australia in new technologies, research, development, manufacturing, and ensure where the kind of economy. We want to be going into the future.
0: Uh, We'll keep a close eye on what happens next in this space. Susan and John, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Matt.
2: Thanks, Matt.
0: What a great interview. Really sounds like IP holders are in a tough position right now. Yeah, and I went back and had a look at those reports that led to the repeal of the IP licensing exemption. Mm, Of course you did. And actually, both the Harper Review and the Productivity Commission said that IP licenses should continue to be exempt from the cartel provisions. Under the broad exception for vertical supply arrangements that Harper had recommended. But that broad exception was never implemented, though, was it? No. Harper also said there might be a block exemption for IP licensing like they have in Europe, but that didn't happen either. So there's really not much protection from even criminal cartel exposure, which doesn't seem to be what anyone intended. So I guess that just leaves us with the authorisation process, and uh, we've just seen how that can play out. We sure have. And, you know, now that the government's ticking off their competition policy election promises, they might go a bit further and think about the Harper recommendations that still haven't been followed up, like that vertical supply exception and simplifying the cartel provisions. Well, Dr. Andrew Lee, if you're listening, come onto the pod and tell us what you reckon.
1: So, Matt, are you seeing these changes in your crystal ball?
0: Well, not just yet, but I do have something. We mentioned a while ago that the Australian Energy Regulator had questioned whether the National Gas Objective was still fit for purpose.
1: Yes, and that's because the National Gas Objective is to promote efficient investment, operation, and use. For the long-term interests of natural gas consumers. And that, of course, includes price. So that can conflict with our commitment to
0: reduce the use of fossil fuels. Exactly. I mean, you could argue that the long-term interest of natural gas customers is actually to get them off natural gas, like it's in the long-term interest of smokers to get them to quit. Well, yes, indeed, you could. But on its face, that objective is more about increasing the use and reducing the unit cost of natural gas. So it's hard to get around that. It is. And the good news is that the Commonwealth, State and Territory Energy Ministers have got together in a new framework for the smooth transformation of the energy sector, which will add emissions reduction to the three key objectives of the national energy laws. Well, that is good news. Yeah, we spoke about the National Gas Objective, but there's also the National Electricity Objective and the National Energy Retail Objective, or NERO. Mm, they should think about renaming Nero while they're at it, hey? The idea of fiddling while Rome burns is
1: a bit unsettling.
0: I think so. And, you know, we've gone from Juno to Nero in about half an hour, which is like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire well over again. Oh, dear. Well, they could rename it the National Energy Retail Directive
1: after you. Oh, et tu, Moya. And <laughs> well, now this really is the El Nerdico. Maybe we should leave it there. Remember, you can find relevant
0: links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including USC professor Danny Sokol on regulation, investment and innovation. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends, Romans and countrymen.
1: Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Nerds are us.
0: Sidious altius, nerds are us.